Here we go, a brand new edition of Sports Medicine Weekly on this Saturday morning. Good morning, everybody. I'm Steve Cashel, your Chicago Bulls radio host, joined this week by Dr. Nick Verma. He is the head team physician for the Chicago White Sox and a sports medicine specialist, orthopedic surgeon from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, subbing this week for Dr. Brian Cole. Dr. Nick, thanks so much for joining us again. Good morning, Steve. It's always great to be here. I appreciate it. Well, let's get right into it, and uh, I've got a lot to do on this show, but let's talk about uh, football. Oh, training camps are, you know, NFL, we only have another week or so, it seems, in the regular season. Um, college has been going for the last couple of weeks. High school's underway now, and then, of course, we have to discuss the debate about head trauma, and we're leading to concussions, right? Yeah, it's scary stuff, Steve. You know, in this Really, I think this is probably going to be one of the biggest issues that uh, football in all levels has to face over the next 10 to 15 years. You're, you're a parent. I'm a parent. Uh, you know, we talk to other parents. I think that this is the debate that you're actually hearing other um, individuals have regarding should we even be letting our kids play this sport and what's the risk long term uh, when we think about the head injuries that are occurring. Most concussions occur without losing consciousness. So that's, that's, that's hard to figure out, isn't it? Yeah, I think this has been one of the difficulties with concussions and one of the areas where we probably made the most progress is we went from an era where, you know, guys would stumble off the sidelines, they'd quote-unquote get their bell rung, and, you know, they'd be back out there the next uh, series or, or the next drive. We've now gotten to a point where we're very vigilant about the identification and the screening for concussions, which means that certainly at the professional and the college level and now bleeding down into the high school level, there are independent observers or physicians on the sidelines who are screening players for any signs of an impact that could cause a concussion or any symptoms that may be reflective of a concussion. And in fact, at the, at the major league level and the college level, uh, we've taken these much of the decision-making out of the hands of the coaches, out of the hands of the team physicians, and we now have independent concussion specialists who are on site at the games making decisions in the best interest of the player about who can go back and who needs to sit this one out. You know, we've got CTE we're always worried about, right? We've seen the examples of that uh, here in Chicago. Mike Adamley comes to mind, and Mike's been very open about it, the former Northwestern running back and Bears player and Channel 5 anchor. And, uh, boys, and then some people committing suicide because of CTE. It's really scary to see some of the ramifications that have existed in these players long term with dementia and depression and, uh, as you said, suicides, those types of things that happen. And I think the scariest part is we really still don't understand what is the determining factor. What is the criteria for somebody at risk for developing CTE? Is it the number of concussions? Is it the significance of the concussions? Is it even subclinical blows to the head, meaning can you really never exhibit signs of a concussion but take enough hits uh, or impacts as a running back or a wide receiver and still uh, suffer some of the consequences of CTE. And this is why people are debating whether, you know, football is something that we should be allowing our, our youth uh, to play. I think the, the main point for those listening in this morning is really the vigilance that goes into understanding that Concussion doesn't have to mean they got hit and they passed out on the field. It can be very subtle signings, uh, findings of things like uh, headaches, uh, difficulty standing, blurred vision, um, really just recovery from sports or performance. We really need to be vigilant about identifying anybody who's involved in a collision that puts them at risk for a concussion and certainly any subtle signs that a concussion may have, been a, uh, may have occurred. And it really, as parents, as, as uh, caregivers or as medical professionals, 
the onus is on us to take a, pa- a player out of a game who has a suspected concussion until you can definitively prove that they did not have one. Yeah, among the 202 deceased brain donors uh, for CTE, it was new neuropathologically diagnosed in 177 of the 202. And uh, the mean years of foot particip- football participation, 15 years. How about that? So it's, it's it, uh, as I said, it's, it's scary. It really is. Boy, oh boy. You know, my, my, my 12-year-old's playing, he loves it, you know. He plays a little flag football with his junior high team, and then he plays uh, full pads football, and they're trying to keep it as safe. And I said, you know, give me the fair, Gary Fensick way, you know, hit with, your, hit with your shoulder pads, keep your head out of it, you know. Certainly there's training about uh, ways to tackle and, and how we try to remain as healthy as possible. As you know, particularly as we get to the NFL level, the speed of the game and the speed of the individuals and the athletes um, is just so fast that even with tackling modification, it's impossible to avoid some of these collisions that occurred. I think what's really scary, though, is when you look at the CTA data, is CTE data is, again, how much even subclinical impacts are predictive of CT or causative of CTE. So even though your kid may play the entire four years of high school without a concussion, could they still potentially be at risk for CT just because they've endured some blows to the head? And I think we're going to continue to learn about this subject and understand what's safe and what's not safe as we move forward. And moving on here on Sports Medicine Weekly, Doc wanted to get into a little bit about uh, scarring. Okay, people have surgery. You're trying to um, improve the way we close wounds, right? And we're going to talk with a, with a gentleman who uh, may have that answer, right? Yeah, it's so interesting, Steve. When we think about um, surgery, right, or going through a surgical procedure, there's so many different perspectives on what that means. And and as a doctor, we don't often think a lot about closing a wound or or necessarily the scar that we're going to leave behind. We're thinking about how do we fix the problem on the inside? How do we make sure that the tendon's going to heal or that we restore stability to the knee or whatever we may be trying to achieve with the procedure? But when we flip it around and think about it from the patient side, I'll tell you one of the most common questions I get in the office is how big's the scar and what it's going to look like. Yeah. And when you talk to patients, and you probably have friends that have had surgery and, and talk to you about their experiences, that's one of the things they tell you, right, is look at this scar. It looks beautiful. I mean, he did such a great job. I mean, to them, that equates with quality and and how the surgeon performs. So it's probably something that we need to think more about as surgeons. Unfortunately, we've got um, technology that's evolving with products like the one we're going to talk about today, uh, band grip, which A, makes it easier to close wounds, uh, makes it faster to close wounds so we can do things more efficiently in an operating room setting. It helps us to save on cost, which is obviously a, a big concern in 2019. But most importantly, we think that it's actually going to improve wound healing, decrease the risk of infection, and improve cosmesis for patients. All righty. Band grip owner and founder, the CEO, is Fred Smith. And Fred joins us right now on Sports Medicine Weekly. Again, the Bandgrip Micro Anchor Skin Closures, faster, easier, non-invasive way to safely close wounds. And Fred, thanks so much for joining us here on this Saturday morning on The Score with our Sports Medicine Weekly show. So you got to tell us, uh, uh, carrying on from what the Dr. Nick was telling us, what is Bandgrip and can you explain uh, how it works? Sure. And first, thank you. It's great to be on your show. Uh, Bandgrip is the next generation that will become standard of care across the nation and the world. Um, if you go back just as a general history, I'll sort of give you a narrative, then we'll tell you where it is. Back in the Egypt days, that's when mummies were actually using the first sutures. And they really didn't change much since then. So it's been 
hundreds of years using that technology. In the 50s to the 70s, the stapler became a, a next innovation. And then the most current one, sort of super glue at the end of the 90s. So while there might be robots doing brilliant things and minimal invasive surgery at all these hospitals, Rush has been great in receiving the idea of, you know, a scar lasts a lifetime. Is there a better way to approach it? So what we did is, you know, in the last 10, 20 years, there's nanotechnology, microtechnology, and we looked at the nicotine patch, which is just a simple patch with microneedles. And they don't hurt. They just grab the skin. And it was meant to deploy medicine. And we took that technology, but we curved the micro needle into a micro anchor. And then we put it on a stretchy piece of adhesive. And what it does is it pinches the skin close, like you were walking around with your two fingers pinching it. So it's a non-invasive. There's no metal in it. There's no suture in it. And it just pinches the wound close. So it's the next generation of skin closure. And as the doctor was saying, there's lots of great side benefits. The main one is the patient. Uh, when they come in and you're taking out the staple or you're taking out the suture, they have great fear of pain at that moment. This has no pain when you apply it or when you take it off, and it has better scarring or less scarring. And we tell people, you know, a scar lasts a lifetime, ask for band grip. So it's the next generation of standard of care. Yeah, we're visiting with Fred Smith from Band Grip. He is the founder and CEO. It is a micro skin, micro anchor skin closure. So, Fred, you know, obviously, as a surgeon, we think about closing wounds in a surgical perspective, and you great a great gave a great overview about how that's evolved. Uh, we still, uh, prior to Band Grip, had favored sutures, uh, which cause problems with if you use absorbable sutures. We see patients that have actually inflammatory reactions as the suture gets absorbed. And if you use non-absorbable sutures, they've got to be removed in an office setting, which can be sometimes uncomfortable. But there's a whole nother area of wound closure out there that exists in the ER and training rooms. You think about a pediatric population. For those of us who have had kids go to the ER and have to have stitches put in, it's a very traumatic experience for a child to get numbed up. They have to be held down in many cases. Talk about how this can be used outside the operating room in the way we manage wounds. Uh, You and I both, I have a daughter when she was, you know, five or six, she had trauma, just drama in regards to a doctor with a needle to give her Novocaine to do the the sutures. So the notion that you would not have to uh, administer to a child a shot to numb the area, this is something that is non-invasive, not painful, easy to do. A doctor could do it or the nurse could do it in the ER room faster. And then there's in the ER area, sometimes there's patients at different facilities you might not want to come back. So the patient can take this bandage off or this dressing off in seven or 10 days afterwards at home. And it's easy to remove and it's painless. So it's another generation. And and let's go to in training or let's even go to the military. You know, in a military situation, you know, they would like to have a chest seal that holds. 
you know, adhesive doesn't hold in that condition. We've created a chest seal with microanchors that would grip onto them for wound stabilization. Or the Chicago Fire Department is looking at one of our products that is uh, a 6-inch by 36-inch that's like a tourniquet wrap for wound stabilization even before they get to the ER department because you, we would all know, the military or the ER, the issue in trauma is blood loss. And the sooner that you can stop the bleeding and stabilize the patient, the survival rate is dramatically different. I think in the special forces, they call that the golden hour. And within one hour, they need to have the person in a procedure and stabilized. Fred, how about at home? Is this something that maybe could replace a Band-Aid? That, that That's Steve, what I was thinking about, yeah. Steve could just put on if he's got a cut or his son has a cut? It, it is. So, you know, but we're not launching the consumer product initially. What it's going to be is we wanted the doctor's endorsement. And you know that we're doing procedures like a total knee replacement, or those are complex, difficult things to do. If we're good enough to do a total knee replacement, that means it would be good enough for a mother or a father at home in a year or three years. When we launch the consumer product, there won't be a need to go to the ER department. We had had a registered nurse who had a 22-year-old cut his hand on a bottle, they're 75 miles away from any, you know, primary care or urgent care. They put one on, you know, within four or five minutes. The bleeding stopped immediately. He was out in the backyard roasting marshmallows in two and a half days. It healed. He took it off, and it had a great cosmetic outcome. So that notion of 65 million people that go into, you know, punctures, lacerations, or cuts, those people that someday won't have to go to the ER department, the ER department doesn't want them there. They want to be able to not be, you know, blocked up with lacerations. They want to be dealing with heart attacks or far more critical types of things. Right. All righty, Fred. Great stuff. Your website is bandgrip.com. I can't wait till you put it on the market for us uh, consumers out there. But thanks so much for joining us here on Sports Medicine Weekly, making the surgeon's job a little easier right now, right? Absolutely. Fred Smith. Founder and CEO of Band Grip. Interesting product. I love it. we got to take a break right now, Doc. So we're going to come back. Steve Cashel, Dr. Nick Verma subbing this week for Dr. Brian Cole. When we return, it's our Ask the Doctor segment, only on Sports Medicine Weekly here on 670 The Score. Back here on this Saturday morning, Sports Medicine Weekly, Steve Cashel, and being co-hosted this week by Dr. Nick Verma from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. He is in for Dr. Brian Cole, and Dr. Nick is the head team physician for the Chicago White Sox. Time now for our Ask the Doctor segment here on Sports Medicine Weekly, giving our listeners the opportunity to have our doctors address their specific sports injury issues. It's very easy to get involved. Go to our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com, and on the homepage, you will find the picture of Dr. Cole and yours truly. Click on that link, and you can ask the doc a question. Just submit it. And we'll do our best to get it on the air. Ready to go, Dr. Nick Verma? I'm ready. All right, here we go. First question for this show is, I get dizzy during high-intensity group workouts, this person says, and writes, I am gradually trying to increase my cardio capability, so I am exerting myself harder than usual. What can I do to uh, take away the dizziness? So important question, Steve, and we can talk about some of the things that you can do pre-exercise to try to uh, mediate or relieve this problem. 
But the first thing that I want to mention is that the dizziness can be a sign of a much more significant medical problem. And so the first words of advice to uh, this patient and any, any athlete who's experiencing these types of symptoms is you absolutely cannot ignore it. This is something where you probably need to stop participating in that sport or that exercise and see your physician to make sure that they're looking at you from head to toe for things like uh, cardiac issues or, or um, uh, sclerosis of your vessels or other you know stroke-type symptoms. There can be a whole variety of issues that could cause dizziness with uh, exercise, and some of them can be fairly serious. So the first words of advice are stop, go see your doctor, make sure that there's nothing physically going on that could be a problem or create a bigger problem for you. Once that's been eliminated, you know, there are a couple different uh, areas where we think that dizziness may be caused. The most simple is just simple dehydration. So we know that when you exercise in high intensity, you lose a lot of water. We know that most of us don't drink enough water during the day. We're here in summer in Chicago, which can be hot and humid, so we're losing water during our normal activities of daily living. So the first thing is to just make sure that you're getting enough fluid consumption both before and after exercise and on a daily basis, because if you're starting a new high-intensity workout and doing it five to seven times a week, you may become fluid deficient over time. Secondly, we can think about things like sports supplements to make sure we're getting the electrolyte uh, uh, replenishment that we need when we're performing workout activities. And then the last one is is a breathing pattern. So sometimes as we go into these high-intensity exercises, we're simply not breathing the way that we normally should. So you really need to concentrate on your breathing pattern during exercise, avoid holding your breath, Avoid trying to take shallow breaths just to keep up with the exercise. Maybe you scale back a little bit on the intensity, but make sure that you're keeping up with your breathing pattern during the exercise itself. Great stuff. Dr. Nick Verma, I've got question number two of our show here in our Ask the Doctor segment on Sports Medicine Weekly. Here we go. Will working out at night cause sleep problems? Another great question, Steve. You know, I, I sometimes feel like when I do a late-night exercise, and unfortunately with all of our busy schedules, that's sometimes the only time you can actually get into the gym. The kids are asleep. You've got an hour to yourself. You can finally get a workout in. And we all know that after a workout, you feel fairly revved up, and it can be sometimes hard to get to sleep afterwards. There was a recent study that was done that actually looked at this to try to determine do uh, individuals that exercise at night have more difficulty or less productive sleep compared to those that exercise in mornings or other times. And the good news is they actually found that uh, there was really no difference in those who exercised in the evening compared to those that exercised in uh, uh, earlier times in the day with regard to their quality of sleep. And that's really what we're looking for when we sleep, right, is not only the ability to fall asleep, but once you do fall asleep, the thing that makes you restless or tired in the morning is when you don't have that quality, what we call REM sleep, which is mm-hmm. really where you're in the deep phases of sleep. So I think the take-home here is there's really no problem with sleep and exercise at night. Find the time that works for you and get the exercise in. All righty. Good stuff. Dr. Nick Verma continuing on with our Ask the Doctor segment here on Sports Medicine Weekly. Again, if you want to submit a question, just go to our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com. You'll find the link on our home page. Here we go, Doc. Another person asking, what is complex training? So I think, you know, complex training is different for different people. But when we talk about it from a medical perspective, it's really trying to combine slow, heavy strength exercises. So these would be things like doing a squat or a press, um, a uh, uh, overhead lift type activity, really weightlifting activities with things like light, fast, explosive exercises. So these would be a sprint, for example, or doing box jumps or some uh, doing um, uh, spin classes, something where you're really getting your heart rate up high. 
Uh, and I think the idea is that if we if we alternate strength training with aerobic high intensity training, we can kind of get the best of both worlds in terms of um, helping to recruit our nervous system to allow the muscles to develop better, uh, take advantage of what we call the fast twitch fibers, which are the muscles, in, uh, the fibers in your muscle that really allow for quick contractions for things like acceleration or fast velocity with batting, um, hitting a hockey puck, those types of things. So it really helps to improve our, uh, not only our, our training from an aerobic standpoint, so our endurance, but also our strength and power. So it's one of the concepts that we integrate into training to try to maximize the benefits on both sides of the equation. I've got another one here, uh, a woman with child. Uh, all right. What kind of benefits are there to exercising when pregnant? Another great question. You know, it's something that we often see when women come into the office to see us. They've got sports medicine conditions. They're maybe in the early stages of the pregnancy. They want to maintain their activity level, obviously, for their own health and well-being, for the health and well-being of their um, developing child, as well as for their ability to get back to sports afterwards. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in this topic and a lot of work that's done in this topic. In fact, a recent study looked at 71 healthy pregnant women between the ages of 18 to 35, and they were randomly assigned to either a group that participated in aerobic exercise intervention during their pregnancy and a group that did no exercise during their uh, pregnancy. And what they found was that the neuromotor skills that were measured at a, a one month of age in the babies was actually improved in the patients that were in the exercise group. So not only is this a good idea for you, but it's also a good idea for your uh, infant child or your developing child. And we strongly encourage maintaining an active, healthy lifestyle during pregnancy. Great stuff, Doc. Appreciate it. Um, again, you're uh, 24-7 with the White Sox. So you feel like it's winding down in this final uh, month or so of the season? Yeah, these are really the dog days of summer in terms of just trying to get to the end of the, of the marathon, so to speak. We want to make sure our guys are staying healthy. Um, and really what we'll start doing in the next, you know, I can't believe we're almost in September here. What we'll start to look at as we move into September is how do we set all of the off-season plans for our, our athletes to make sure that they come back in February and are performing their best. All right. Wish you the best. Thanks so much for uh, being my co-host this week on Sports Medicine Weekly. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Nick Verma, head team physician for the Chicago White Sox. And we want to thank our producer, Shane Reardon. Also, our coordinating producer is Tracy Toro. Also want to thank David Cole for managing our website and our business operations, as well as Samantha Smith from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. Thanks to everyone who uh, tuned in and asked the doctor questions. You can submit those again on our homepage of our website, sportsmedicineweekly.com. So for Dr. Nick Verma, I'm Steve Cashel saying so long. Thanks for listening to this edition of Sports Medicine Weekly. Up next on The Score, it's Early Odds with Joe Ostrowski. Talk with you again next week for another edition of Sports Medicine Weekly, only on 670 The Score.